This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 45. The Cholera by Way of Variety. Hot. Another Outlandish Procession. Pen and Ink Photograph of Jonesboro, Syria. Tomb of Nimrod the Mighty Hunter. The Stateliest Ruin of All. Stepping over the border of Holy Land. Bathing in the sources of Jordan. More specimen hunting. Ruins of Caesarea. Philippi. On this rock will I build my church. The people the disciples knew. The noble steed Baalbek. Sentimental horse idolatry of the Arabs. The last twenty-four hours we stayed in Damascus I lay prostrate with a violent attack of cholera, or cholera morbus, and therefore had a good chance and a good excuse to lie there on that wide divan and take an honest rest. I had nothing to do but listen to the pattering of the fountains, and take medicine, and throw it up again. It was dangerous recreation, but it was pleasanter than travelling in Syria. I had plenty of snow from Mount Hermon, and as it would not stay on my stomach, there was nothing to interfere with my eating it. There was always room for more. I enjoyed myself very well. Syrian travel has its interesting features, like travel in any other part of the world, and yet to break your leg or have the cholera adds a welcome variety to it. We left Damascus at noon, and rode across the plain a couple of hours, and then the party stopped a while in the shade of some fig-trees to give me a chance to rest. It was the hottest day we had seen yet. The sun-flames shot down like the shafts of fire that stream out before a blowpipe. The rays seemed to fall in a steady deluge on the head and pass downward like rain from a roof. I imagined I could distinguish between the floods of rays. I thought I could tell when each flood struck my head, when it reached my shoulders, and when the next one came. It was terrible. All the desert glared so fiercely that my eyes were swimming in tears all the time. The boys had white umbrellas heavily lined with dark green. They were a priceless blessing. I thanked fortune that I had one, too, notwithstanding it was packed up with a baggage and was ten miles ahead. It is madness to travel in Syria without an umbrella. They told me in Beirut, these people who always gorge you with advice, that it was madness to travel in Syria without an umbrella. It was on this account that I got one. But honestly, I think an umbrella is a nuisance anywhere when its business is to keep the sun off. No Arab wears a brim to his fez, or uses an umbrella, or anything to shade his eyes or his face, and he always looks comfortable and proper in the sun. But of all the ridiculous sights I ever have seen, our party of eight is the most so. They do cut such an outlandish figure. They travel single file. They all wear the endless white rag of Constantinople wrapped round and round their hats and dangling down their backs. They all wear thick green spectacles with side-glasses to them. They all hold white umbrellas lined with green over their heads. Without exception, their stirrups are too short. They are the very worst gang of horsemen on earth. Their animals, to a horse, trot fearfully hard, and when they get strung out one after the other, glaring straight ahead and breathless, bouncing high and out of turn, all along the line, knees well up and stiff, elbows flapping like a rooster's that is going to crow, and the long file of umbrellas popping convulsively up and down, when one sees this outrageous picture exposed to the light of day, 
he is amazed that the gods don't get out their thunderbolts and destroy them off the face of the earth. I do. I wonder at it. I wouldn't let any such caravan go through a country of mine. And when the sun drops below the horizon and the boys close their umbrellas and put them under their arms, it is only a variation of the picture, not a modification of its absurdity. But maybe you cannot see the wild extravagance of my panorama. You could if you were here. Here you feel all the time just as if you were living about the year 1200 before Christ, or back to the patriarchs, or forward to the new era. The scenery of the Bible is about you. The customs of the patriarchs are around you. The same people in the same flowing robes and in sandals cross your path. The same long trains of stately camels go and come. The same impressive religious solemnity and silence rest upon the desert and the mountains that were upon them in the remote ages of antiquity. And behold, intruding upon a scene like this, comes this fantastic mob of green-spectacled Yanks, with their flapping elbows and bobbing umbrellas. It is Daniel in the lion's den with a green cotton umbrella under his arm all over again. My umbrella is with the baggage, and so are my green spectacles, and there they shall stay. I will not use them. I will show some respect for the eternal fitness of things. It will be bad enough to get sunstruck without looking ridiculous into the bargain. If I fail, let me fail bearing about me the semblance of a Christian, at least. Three or four hours out from Damascus we passed the spot where Saul was so abruptly converted, and from this place we looked back over the scorching desert, and had our last glimpse of beautiful Damascus, decked in its robes of shining green. After nightfall we reached our tents just outside of the nasty Arab village of Jonesboro. Of course the real name of the place is El something or other, but the boys still refuse to recognize the Arab names or try to pronounce them. When I say that that village is of the usual style, I mean to insinuate that all Syrian villages within fifty miles of Damascus are alike, so much alike that it would require more than human intelligence to tell wherein one differed from another. A Syrian village is a hive of huts one story high, the height of a man, and as square as a dry-goods box. It is mud-plastered all over, flat roof and all, and generally whitewashed after a fashion. The same roof often extends over half the town, covering many of the streets, which are generally about a yard wide. When you ride through one of these villages at noonday, you first meet a melancholy dog, that looks up at you and silently begs that you won't run over him, but he does not offer to get out of the way. Next you meet a young boy without any clothes on, and he holds out his hand and says, Bookshish! He don't really expect a cent but then he learned to say that before he learned to say mother, and now he cannot break himself of it. Next you meet a woman with a black veil drawn closely over her face, and her bust exposed. Finally you come to several sore-eyed children, and children in all stages of mutilation and decay, and, sitting humbly in the dust and all fringed with filthy rags, is a poor devil whose arms and legs are gnarled and twisted like grapevines. These are all people you are likely to see. The balance of the population are asleep within doors, or abroad tending goats in the plains and on the hillsides. The village is built on some consumptive little watercourse, and about it is a little fresh-looking vegetation. Beyond this charmed circle, for miles on every side, stretches a weary desert of sand and gravel, which produces a gray, bunchy shrub like sagebrush, 
A Syrian village is the sorriest sight in the world, and its surroundings are eminently in keeping with it. I would not have gone into this dissertation upon Syrian villages but for the fact that Nimrod, the mighty hunter of scriptural notoriety, is buried in Jonesboro, and I wish the public to know about how he is located. Like Homer, he is said to be buried in many other places, but this is the only true and genuine place his ashes inhabit. When the original tribes were dispersed, more than four thousand years ago, Nimrod and a large party traveled three or four hundred miles, and settled where the great city of Babylon afterwards stood. Nimrod built that city. He also began to build the famous Tower of Babel, but circumstances over which he had no control put it out of his power to finish it. He ran it up eight stories high, however, and two of them still stand at this day. A colossal mass of brickwork rent down the center by earthquakes, and seared and vitrified by the lightnings of an angry god. But the vast ruin will still stand for ages, to shame the puny labors of these modern generations of men. Its huge compartments are tenanted by owls and lions, and old Nimrod lies neglected in this wretched village, far from the scene of his grand enterprise. We left Jonesboro very early in the morning, and rode forever and forever and forever, it seemed to me, over parched deserts and rocky hills, hungry, and with no water to drink. We had drained the goatskins dry in a little while. At noon we halted before the wretched Arab town of El Yubadam, perched on the side of a mountain, but the dragomen said if we applied there for water we would be attacked by the whole tribe, for they did not love Christians. We had to journey on. Two hours later we reached the foot of a tall, isolated mountain, which is crowned by the crumbling castle of Benias, the stateliest ruin of that kind on earth, no doubt. It is a thousand feet long and two hundred wide, all of the most symmetrical and at the same time the most ponderous masonry. The massive towers and bastions are more than thirty feet high, and have been sixty. From the mountain's peak its broken turrets rise above the groves of ancient oaks and olives, and look wonderfully picturesque. It is of such high antiquity that no man knows who built it, or when it was built. It is utterly inaccessible, except in one place, where a bridle-path winds upward among the solid rocks to the old portcullis. The horse's hoofs have bored holes in these rocks to the depth of six inches during the hundreds and hundreds of years that the castle was garrisoned. We wandered for three hours among the chambers and crypts and dungeons of the fortress, and trod where the mailed heels of many a knightly crusader had rang, and where Phoenician heroes had walked ages before them. We wondered how such a solid mass of masonry could be affected even by an earthquake, and could not understand what agency had made Benias a ruin. But we found the destroyer after a while, and then our wonder was increased tenfold. Seeds had fallen in crevices in the vast walls. The seeds had sprouted. The tender, insignificant sprouts had hardened. They grew larger and larger, and by a steady, imperceptible pressure forced the great stones apart, and now are bringing sure destruction upon a giant work that has even mocked the earthquakes to scorn. Gnarled and twisted trees spring from the old walls everywhere, and beautify and overshadow the gray battlements with a wild luxuriance of foliage. From these old towers we looked down upon a broad, far-reaching green plain, 
glittering with the pools and rivulets which are the sources of the sacred river Jordan. It was a grateful vision, after so much desert. And as the evening drew near, we clambered down the mountain, through groves of the biblical oaks of Bashan, for we were just stepping over the border and entering the long-sought Holy Land, and at its extreme foot, toward the wide valley, we entered this little execrable village of Benias, and camped in a great grove of olive-trees near a torrent of sparkling water, whose banks are arrayed in fig-trees, pomegranates, and oleanders in full leaf. Barring the proximity of the village, it is a sort of paradise. The very first thing one feels like doing when he gets into camp, all burning up and dusty, is to hunt up a bath. We followed the stream up to where it gushes out of the mountain aside, three hundred yards from the tents, and took a bath that was so icy that if I did not know this was the main source of the sacred river, I would expect harm to come of it. It was bathing at noonday in the chilly source of the Abana River of Damascus that gave me the cholera, so Dr. B. said. However, it generally does give me the cholera to take a bath. The incorrigible pilgrims have come in with their pockets full of specimens broken from the ruins. I wish this vandalism could be stopped. They broke off fragments from Noah's tomb, from the exquisite sculptures of the temples of Baalbek, from the houses of Judas and Ananias in Damascus, from the tomb of Nimrod the mighty hunter in Jonesboro, from the worn Greek and Roman inscriptions set in the hoary walls of the castle of Benias, and now they have been hacking and chipping these old arches here that Jesus looked upon in the flesh. Heaven protect the sepulchre when this tribe invades Jerusalem. The ruins here are not very interesting. There are the massive walls of a great square building that was once the citadel. There are many ponderous old arches that are so smothered with debris that they barely project above the ground. There are heavy-walled sewers through which the crystal brook of which Jordan is born still runs. In the hillside are the substructions of a costly marble temple that Herod the Great built here. Patches of its handsome mosaic floors still remain. There is a quaint old stone bridge that was here before Herod's time, maybe. Scattered everywhere in the paths and in the woods are Corinthian capitals, broken porphyry pillars, and little fragments of sculpture and up yonder, in the precipice where the fountain gushes out, are well-worn Greek inscriptions over niches in the rock where in ancient times the Greeks, and after them the Romans, worshipped the sylvan god Pan. But trees and bushes grow above many of these ruins now. The miserable huts of a little crew of filthy Arabs are perched upon the broken masonry of antiquity. The whole place has a sleepy, stupid, rural look about it, and one can hardly bring himself to believe that a busy, substantially built city once existed here, even two thousand years ago. The place was, nevertheless, the scene of an event whose effects have added page after page and volume after volume to the world's history. For in this place Christ stood when he said to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. On those little sentences have been built up the mighty edifice of the Church of Rome. In them lie the authority for the imperial power of the popes over temporal affairs, and their godlike power to curse a soul or wash it white from sin. To sustain the position of the only true church 
which Rome claims was thus conferred upon her, she has fought and labored and struggled for many a century, and will continue to keep herself busy in the same work to the end of time. The memorable words I have quoted give to this ruined city about all the interest it possesses to people of the present day. It seems curious enough to us to be standing on ground that was once actually pressed by the feet of the Saviour. The situation is suggestive of a reality and a tangibility that seems at variance with the vagueness and mystery and ghostliness that one naturally attaches to the character of a god. I cannot comprehend yet that I am sitting where a god has stood, and looking upon the brook and the mountains which that god looked upon, and am surrounded by dusky men and women whose ancestors saw him, and even talked with him face to face, and carelessly, just as they would have done with any other stranger. I cannot comprehend this. The gods of my understanding have been always hidden in clouds, and very far away. This morning, during breakfast, the usual assemblage of squalid humanity sat patiently without the charmed circle of the camp, and waited for such crumbs as pity might bestow upon their misery. There were old and young, brown-skinned and yellow. Some of the men were tall and stalwart, for one hardly sees anywhere such splendid-looking men as here in the East. But all the women and children looked worn and sad, and distressed with hunger. They reminded me much of Indians, did these people. They had but little clothing, but such as they had was fanciful in character and fantastic in its arrangement. Any little absurd gewgaw or gimcrack they had, they disposed in such a way as to make it attract attention most readily. They sat in silence, and with tireless patience watched out every motion with that vile, uncomplaining impoliteness which is so truly Indian and which makes a white man so nervous and uncomfortable and savage that he wants to exterminate the whole tribe. These people about us had other peculiarities, which I have noticed in the noble red man, too. They were infested with vermin, and the dirt had caked on them till it amounted to bark. The little children were in a pitiable condition. They all had sore eyes, and were otherwise afflicted in various ways. They say that hardly a native child in all the East is free from sore eyes, and that thousands of them go blind of one eye or both every year. I think this must be so, for I see plenty of blind people every day, and I do not remember seeing any children that hadn't sore eyes. And would you suppose that an American mother could sit for an hour with her child in her arms, and let a hundred flies roost upon its eyes all that time undisturbed? I see that every day. It makes my flesh creep. Yesterday we met a woman riding on a little jackass, and she had a little child in her arms. Honestly, I thought the child had goggles on as we approached, and I wondered how its mother could afford so much style. But when we drew near we saw that the goggles were nothing but a camp-meeting of flies assembled around each of the child's eyes, and at the same time there were a detachment prospecting its nose. The flies were happy, the child was contented, and so the mother did not interfere. As soon as the tribe found out that we had a doctor in our party, they began to flock in from all quarters. Dr. B., in the charity of his nature, had taken a child from a woman who sat nearby, and put some sort of a wash upon its diseased eyes. That woman went off and started the whole nation, and it was a sight to see them swarm. The lame, the halt, the blind, the leprous, all the distempers that are bred of indolence, dirt, and iniquity were represented in the Congress in ten minutes, and still they came. 
every woman that had a sick baby brought it along, and every woman that hadn't borrowed one. What reverent and what worshipping looks they bent upon that dread mysterious power, the doctor! They watched him take his files out, they watched him measure the particles of white powder, they watched him add drops of one precious liquid and drops of another. They lost not the slightest movement. Their eyes were riveted upon him with a fascination that nothing could distract. I believe they thought he was gifted like a god. When each individual got his portion of medicine, his eyes were radiant with joy, notwithstanding by nature they are a thankless and impassive race, and upon his face was written the unquestioning faith that nothing on earth could prevent the patient from getting well now. Christ knew how to preach to these simple, superstitious, disease-tortured creatures. He healed the sick. They flocked to our poor human doctor this morning, when the fame of what he had done to the sick child went abroad in the land, and they worshipped him with their eyes, while they did not know as yet whether there was virtue in his simples or not. The ancestors of these, people precisely like them in color, dress, manners, customs, simplicity, flocked in vast multitudes after Christ, and when they saw him make the afflicted whole with a word, it is no wonder they worshipped him. No wonder his deeds were the talk of the nation. No wonder the multitude that followed him was so great that at one point, thirty miles from here, they had to let a sick man down through the roof because no approach could be made to the door. No wonder his audience were so great at Galilee that he had to preach from a ship removed a little distance from the shore. No wonder that even in the desert places about Bethsaida five thousand invaded his solitude, and he had to feed them by a miracle, or else see them suffer for their confiding faith and devotion. No wonder when there was a great commotion in a city in those days one neighbor explained it to another in words to this effect, They say that Jesus of Nazareth is come. Well, as I was saying, the doctor distributed medicine as long as he had any to distribute, and his reputation is mighty in Galilee this day. Among his patients was the child of the sheik's daughter, for even this poor ragged handful of sores and sin has its royal sheik, a poor old mummy that looked as if he would be more at home in a poor house than in the chief magistracy of this tribe of hopeless shirtless savages. The princess, I mean the sheik's daughter, was only thirteen or fourteen years old, and had a very sweet face and a pretty one. She was the only Syrian female we have seen yet who was not so sinfully ugly that she couldn't smile after ten o'clock Saturday night without breaking the Sabbath. Her child was a hard specimen, though. There wasn't enough of it to make a pie, and the poor little thing looked so pleadingly up at all who came near it, as if it had an idea that now was its chance or never, that we were filled with compassion, which was genuine and not put on. But this last new horse I have got is trying to break his neck over the tent ropes, and I shall have to go out and anchor him. Jericho and I have parted company. The new horse is not much to boast of, I think. One of his hind legs bends the wrong way, and the other one is as straight and stiff as a tent pole. Most of his teeth are gone, and he is as blind as bat. His nose has been broken at some time or other, and is arched like a culvert now. His under-lip hangs down like a camel's, and his ears are chopped off close to his head. I had some trouble at first to find a name for him, but I finally concluded to call him Balbec, because he is such a magnificent ruin. I cannot keep from talking about my horses, because I have a very long and tedious journey before me, 
and they naturally occupy my thoughts about as much as matters of apparently much greater importance. We satisfied our pilgrims by making those hard rides from Baalbek to Damascus, but Dan's horse and Jack's were so crippled we had to leave them behind and get fresh animals for them. The dragoman says Jack's horse died. I swapped horses with Mohammed, the kingly-looking Egyptian who is our Ferguson's lieutenant. By Ferguson I mean our dragoman Abraham, of course. I did not take this horse on account of his personal appearance, but because I have not seen his back. I do not wish to see it. I have seen the backs of all the other horses, and found most of them covered with dreadful saddle-boils, which I know have not been washed or doctored for years. The idea of riding all day long over such ghastly inquisitions of torture is sickening. My horse must be like the others, but I have at least the consolation of not knowing it to be so. I hope that in future I may be spared any more sentimental praises of the Arab's idolatry of his horse. In boyhood I longed to be an Arab of the desert and have a beautiful mare, and call her Salim, or Benjamin, or Mohammed, and feed her with my own hands, and let her come into the tent, and teach her to caress me and look fondly upon me with her great tender eyes, and I wished that a stranger might come at such a time and offer me a hundred thousand dollars for her, so that I could do like the other Arabs, hesitate, yearn for the money, but, overcome by my love for my mare, at last say, Part with thee, my beautiful one, never with my life. Away, tempter, I scorn thy gold and then bound into the saddle and speed over the desert like the wind. But I recall those aspirations. If these Arabs be like the other Arabs, their love for their beautiful mares is a fraud. These of my acquaintance have no love for their horses, no sentiment of pity for them, and no knowledge of how to treat them or care for them. The Syrian saddle-blanket is a quilted mattress two or three inches thick. It is never removed from the horse, day or night. It gets full of dirt and hair, and becomes soaked with sweat. It is bound to breed sores. These pirates never think of washing a horse's back. They do not shelter the horses in the tents, either. They must stay out and take the weather as it comes. Look at poor cropped and dilapidated Balbec, and weep for the sentiment that has been wasted upon the Selims of romance. End of chapter 45